Our second reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know only in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall fully know, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning to you. Shall we pray for just a moment while the kids go out? Lord, this morning, surrounded by um, this beautiful set, The Midsummer Night's Dream, we're going to be thinking about love. So, Father, I pray this morning that you would open our hearts. Open our hearts to hear what you have for us. Father, we've come here this morning to meet with you, to hear from you through your word, by your spirit. We pray this time would be fruitful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, many years ago, before I became a pastor or a vicar, I uh, dreamed of becoming uh, a filmmaker. And I wanted to get into filmmaking, and I met a guy in church who said he needed a video editor. And I said, I can do that. I mean, how hard can it be? So I put myself forward, and we started up a production company. And uh, we both, neither of us really knew what we were doing. And uh, we started out by making wedding videos because it was relatively simple. It was a good way to learn. And we soon figured out that the way to make most money was to identify really wealthy people and go and film their weddings. And this is in Britain, mostly the British upper classes. And the British don't really go to church. I don't know if you know that. But the Brits kind of gave up on all that stuff quite a while ago in general. But when it comes to weddings, strangely, Brits still want to get married in church. I, I, I don't really know why. And certainly if you are in the upper middle classes, you definitely go to church to get married. So I imagine that all over the country in the UK, there are little conversations that go something like this. Well, darling, I don't really believe in God or anything, but I, I do want to get married in church. Well, okay, I, I suppose we better have a reading from the Bible then. All right, well, what shall we have? Uh, well, what's that bit, you know, that bit about 
love. You know, from that letter that sounds something like a rugby team or, or, or a football team. Cor- Corinthians, is that it? We did hundreds of weddings, and we got to know the people, and I know that a good majority of those people had no faith in God or the church. And yet, they would get married in church and time and time again. That reading, 1 Corinthians 13, I was chatting to my wife this morning, her sister, who does not go to church, got married in a church. Guess what reading she had? 1 Corinthians 13. So all over the nation, in the UK, people still go to church to get married, and they hear about love. And I've often wondered what it is, apart from just, you know, social habit, that causes people to want to get married, that sort of apex of love in a church, and then choose to hear a text from Scripture about love. Could it be that somewhere in the dim recesses of the British heart, and the Brits do have hearts, if you look really closely, occasionally you'll see it. But could it be that somewhere in the deep recesses of the cold British heart, we want to believe in God, and we want to believe in a God of love. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It isn't arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I mean, who wouldn't want to hear that and in our heart of hearts to believe it? So what should we say about love this morning? I have to be intimidated, uh, honest, I'm quite intimidated by talking to you about love. I don't know a lot about love. Just ask my family. I'm learning. And there are scriptures that I find intellectually challenging, scriptures that I find morally challenging or challenge the strength or the direction of my faith, but instinctively I feel I can kind of get a handle on that kind of scripture. I can overcome it with the sheer force of my will, but I cannot overcome love. I can only be overcome by love. And to know God, I must know love. That's what Jesus said. This is from 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another because love is of God and those who love are born of God and know God. Those who do not love do not know God. Why? For God is love. And Jesus began, some would say, the greatest movement that the earth has ever seen. And it was a movement grounded in unconditional love. It's a movement that mandated people like us to live that love and in so doing change not only their own lives but the life of the world. And Jesus was asked to sum up the essence 
of all Israel's understanding of God, the teachings of Moses. And he reached back into the Hebrew Scriptures to Deuteronomy and Leviticus and said, You shall love your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he goes on to say, On these two, love of God and love of neighbor, hang all the law, all the prophets, everything that Moses wrote, everything in the Holy Scriptures, everything that God has been trying to tell the world. Love God. Love your neighbor. It really is all about love. So what should we say about love? Well, perhaps love requires no explanation. It just is what it is. I can't resist it. Here I am on a stage, surrounded by Shakespearean paraphernalia. So here's a little bit of a Shakespeare sonnet. I didn't plan this. I just arrived. Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds, or bends with the remover to remove. Oh, no, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering bark. I don't think I would have made a very good Shakespearean actor. I don't know, but I'd like to have given it a go. What about the Song of Solomon? We read the Song of Solomon. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death, jealousy as fierce as the grave. It flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. Let me ask you a question. Have you read the Song of Solomon? What is a steamy love poem doing in the middle of the Old Testament? I mean, if I were to quote other parts, it would make you blush. What's it doing there? The churches at various times in history tried to explain it away. Oh, well, it's not really about a man and a woman. It's about Jesus and his church. Or is it simply that there is a recognition that in human love, there is an echo of divine love? Not perfect, but a reflection of divine love. So what should we say about love? Well, let's just note this. Paul, in this passage from Corinthians, changes his style. His language becomes heightened. It becomes poetic. It is a bit like Shakespeare. It is a little bit like the Song of Solomon. He does it at various times in his letters. He did it in Philippians, where he quotes this hymn, May our attitude be as that of Christ, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He does it in Romans. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. His language becomes heightened, poetic. And perhaps that's because that's the only way we can really speak about love. And you could see this passage in Corinthians as a sort of digression. Paul was trucking along, talking to the Corinthian church about various problems. Then he thought about love, and then he suddenly went off on a little bit of a riff. 
and sort of riffed on the idea of love. Is that right? Certainly it stands on its own as a passage. That's why it gets used in the church and weddings so many times. But more likely, Paul uses heightened poetic language as a marker. There's a scholar called Longacre who says the poetic language, when you get poetic language in the scriptures, it's like a zone of turbulence. What on earth is he talking about? It's a zone that is intended to disorganize and disrupt your understanding to lead to a sort of state of confusion that can move you to a deeper and greater understanding. And I think Paul heightens his language. It becomes poetic because really the whole argument of Corinthians is about love. That's the point. That's why you came to church this morning. So it's funny how social media works, isn't it? So I uh, know an artist by the name of Charlie Mackesy. Today is Veterans Day in the UK. It's like, uh, not Veterans Day, it's called Remembrance Day in the UK, but it's like Veterans Day, and people buy poppies to remember the First World War and Second World War. And he produces a piece of art, I click on it, and then uh, you know, I see it on Twitter, look at the art, it's nice, and then underneath I see another thing, it's sort of a, a, a veteran. Uh, a, a guy must be nearly 100 years old, maybe over 100 years old, and uh, he is uh, talking about Veterans Day, and he's in the BBC. And in the BBC, they've got these beautiful couches, and these two rather stiff uh, BBC presenters ask this veteran, uh, what would you have to say to young people? A sort of classically patronizing question. Old man, what would you have to say to young people? And uh, he starts off with some sort of old man talk about how young people don't understand these days. Uh, that's all very good. And uh, then in this rather stuffy BBC studio, he starts to say, what I want to say to young people today is all this hate and anger. It, it's just nonsense. And you're looking at this man, and you know that this man has seen up front the consequences of the anger and division of you know, we, we struggle with now. He's seen those consequences. All this hate and anger is nonsense. We need to learn to love each other. And you can see the BBC sort of reporters going, oh, and stiffening up. And then he starts talking about God and Jesus. And you can see now the BBC reporters don't know what to do with this. Love has penetrated the BBC. <laughs> and he goes on and he says, back in my day, under King George VI, we used to have a day of prayer, a national day of prayer. I didn't know that. I, I didn't even know if that's true. That's what he said. I mean, I quite like to look it up now. I, I literally saw it this morning. But we used to have a national day of prayer. And he said, I think we need a national month of prayer. We need love. There's another upper-class English wedding you may have seen recently, Harry and Meghan. Did you watch that? Michael Curry, the Episcopal Bishop, an African-American gentleman. It's fascinating to watch all those British upper-class faces as this African-American gentleman talked about love. This is what he said, and I can't 
match how he spoke, but he said, there's power in love. If you don't believe me, well, there were some old slaves in America's antebellum South who explained the dynamic power of love and why it has the power to transform. They explained it this way. They sang a spiritual. Even in the midst of their captivity, it's the one that says there is a balm in Gilead, a healing balm, something that can make things right. There is a balm in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There is a balm in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. And one of the standards actually explains why. They said, if you cannot preach like Peter, and you cannot pray like Paul, just tell of the love of Jesus. So what should we say about love? Well, let me make two brief points about this passage from 1 Corinthians. Paul's transforming discourse on love. And first is this. This is not disembodied love. It's not some ideal. It's not some Greek idealism. It's Hebrew earthiness. This passage about love was written to a specific community in Corinth who were experiencing specific love problems, deficits of love. So this passage is about embodying love. It's love in a community. That's the first thing. And the second thing is that Paul will want us to recognize in this passage that this love that he is talking about is a now but not yet love. You cannot understand this passage without understanding Paul's eschatology, which is a fancy way of saying how Paul sees the end coming, how he understands the arc of the Christian faith. What about the Corinthian church? Well, they were experiencing some real love problems. First of all, Corinth was actually the home of the temple of Aphrodite and Artemis. And Aphrodite was the supposed god of, or goddess rather, of love. So was, Corinth was well known as the home of Aphrodite. And it has been said that 1,000 temple prostitutes served at that temple, that temple of love. The word Corinthian was used by the Romans, not known as a particularly moral group of people, for immoral excess. And the Corinthian church had proved not immune to the kind of deficient love that exploits another human body for your own pleasure. That was going on in the Corinthian church. And the church was rife with division. The Corinthian church was rife with division, principally along economic lines. Corinth was wealthy, made a lot of money out of shipping. So there were rich people and poor people, but when they came to church, it just wasn't functioning. They had huge problems around communion when we were supposed to gather together and share. And all of these love deficits were showing up in their use of spiritual gifts, which you talked about last week. When I came to America, I came from a church that had a charismatic, uh, a strong charismatic background. And so in a church uh, meeting like this, we would do pretty much what you do. But then at the end, we would invite people forwards and we would invite the Spirit to come lay hands on people and pray for them. And we did that with the expectation that God would speak, that God would do things, that God would heal. That was just part of the tradition that we had. And so when we came out to America, to Charlotte, North Carolina, to plant a church there, we thought, well, we'll just do the same thing. 
The problem in the UK was one of unbelief. People were like, well, I'm not really sure God exists, and does he really speak? So there was a barrier, and that was unbelief. When we came to the US, we just imagined it would be the same in Charlotte, North Carolina. And we found that the problem there was completely different. We found that in general, people did believe that God could speak, but they were very resistant to the work of the Spirit, to spiritual gifts, because they had been abused in the church, in the name of the Spirit. And so there were lots and lots of people who had felt profoundly manipulated by their leaders in the name of the Spirit. Completely different issue. And something like that is going on in the Corinthian church. It's why Paul instructs and says, look, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Don't use these gifts. Don't use these spiritual gifts unless the measure is love. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith, all gifts of the Spirit, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I gave away all I have, that's a gift of the Spirit, generosity. And I deliver up my body to be burned, martyrdom, but have not love, I gain nothing. The measure of all we do, all our spiritual gifts, is love. There was another problem, another love deficit, if you will. Corinth was known for its oratory. oratory. It's speechifying. Top orators like me could earn a fortune, become fabulously wealthy. There were a group of orators known as sophists. And the time that Paul is writing, it's the second sophist movement. It's a great movement of oratory. But even contemporary criticism said it had become more about the performance of the orator than the content. It's kind of competitive speaking. And that's how the spiritual gifts were being used in the church. It was become like a competition, a competitive sport. So you hear Paul's words in that context. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Paul seems to be saying that in the world as you experience it, you will experience love deficits all around you. You will. You will experience a deficit of love. And people's behaviors will be lived out at all levels, from your family to your community, national level, political level, out of these love deficits. But you in the church cannot love like that. The greatest apologetic the church has is not our clever arguments. It is love. There is no counter-argument to love. And it might be one of our tasks as a church concerned about mission to ask what kind of love deficits exist. Have they penetrated us as a church? And then ask how can we embody a different kind of love? The kind of love that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. But then towards the end of passage, 
Paul's voice changes again. Love never ends, he says. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. What's going on here? I, uh, there's a church near me. It's called The Surge. Do you like that as a name for a church? The Surge. Its tagline is unstoppable love. I think it's disastrous. It's like the Titanic, unsinkable ship. What happens if the, sh- what happens if the church, God forbid, falls? Oh, the unstoppable love stopped then, did it? I know that there is a danger in talking about the church and love that we will all at some point experience something of a deficit of love in the church. We may experience it from our leaders. We may experience it within our community. And so the danger is then we say, well, let's just be done with all that love stuff. Didn't work, did it? So we need something of a framework to understand this love that Paul is talking about. And Paul gives it to us. You cannot understand this passage in 1 Corinthians 13 without understanding Paul's eschatology. Paul understood that in Jesus Christ, the love that he was talking about had broken into the world, and yet it was still to come in its fullness. The love of God, the kingdom of God, had already broken into this world, historically has already broken into the world. The church should be a demonstration of that breaking into the world of love. That's what we're supposed to be demonstrating, embodying, so people can look and see what the love of God looks like. That's what we're doing. But at the same time, we need to acknowledge that that love has not come in full. So Paul says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. We are still children in this task of love. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly. We're not seeing fully yet. But then face to face. Then when? When the kingdom of God comes fully. When Jesus returns. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. There's a long tradition in the rabbis of the time. They discussed, because that's what rabbis like to do. How, how, how could prophets see God? How did they hear from God? How did Moses, you remember Moses met God face to face? He's the only one. How did he do it? And they talked about it, sort of comparing it like mirrors. Well, the prophets saw God through lots of different mirrors, you know, mirror, 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 lots of so quite distant. Moses, they said, saw God through one mirror. Even Moses didn't get that close. And you can't but think that Paul was aware of that conversation when he says, now we see in a mirror dimly. We reflect the love of God, but it's dimly. And he finishes by saying, now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Why? Because one day we won't need hope. We won't need faith, but we will see face to face. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and the people will see it together. We will see what love looks like in its fullness. 
But we the church, we cannot say we're ignorant. We're not. It's not okay for us to simply mirror the love deficits of the world around us. We can't do that. This week is the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. Do you know that? That great symbol of hatred and division. And Angela Merkel said this. She's the German chancellor. No wall that keeps people out and restricts freedom is so high that it cannot be broken down. What will break down the walls? It sounds so naive, doesn't it? Like that old gentleman in the BBC studio surrounded by all those expensive cameras and well-trained professional presenters. And he starts talking about love. What? As naive as it sounds, only love can break down the dividing walls of hostility and fear in our society. Only love. Love that mirrors, even dimly, the love of God. And if all we can do is stumble into church when we get married and listen to an old scripture written by an old man, now dead, long gone, the Apostle Paul, who wrote about love. And somewhere in the depth of our hearts, we know it's true. We long for it to be true. That God is love. And the world needs God. The world needs love. You can take this text from Corinthians and substitute the word God for love. And this is how it reads. God is patient and kind. God does not envy or boast. God is not arrogant or rude. God does not insist on his own way. Is not irritable or resentful. God does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. God is love. And that's the kind of love that we are called to embody as a community. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we go on to uh, take communion together now, that symbol of oneness, of love, of putting aside our differences, bringing down the walls of division and hostility, that we would eat from one table, remembering Jesus who came in love to love the world, Would you help us as a community to know what that would look like so that we would not mirror the love deficits of the world around us, but rather mirror and reflect the love of God. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.